we have to make arguments within the bounds of the law. But part of our role as lawyers is is to move the law and move it in the direction we want to move it and to think outside of the limits of what the law is in terms of what's been established already. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we hear from President of the Criminal Lawyers Association, Michael Lacey. Join us as we listen to Michael discuss the lessons he's learned over his many years in an illustrative career in criminal law. From the beginning, Michael has devoted his professional life to criminal law. Michael articled for criminal law legend Alan Gold, the Honorable Justice Michelle First, one of the most respected Superior Court judges in Canada. From there, he commenced his own trial and appellate practice before partnering his strengths with Canada's iconic defense lawyer, the late Eddie Greenspan. Looking back on Michael's career in law is overwhelming in accomplishments and notoriety. The cases he has defended are some of the most well-known in the nation. And unlike many litigators who restrict themselves to either trials or appeals, Michael is equally accomplished as both an appellate lawyer and trial lawyer in all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. Michael's participation in the criminal justice system does not end at his clients or in court. Over the years, Michael's contributions have enhanced the bar as a whole. He is an instructor with Osgood Hall Law School, an author to several publications and bulletins, and a frequent speaker at conferences throughout North America for lawyers, prosecutors, police, and judges. Above all, Michael has harnessed his skill and dedication in criminal law to actively leading one of the largest criminal lawyers associations in the world. As president of the Criminal Lawyers Association in Ontario, Michael continues to fight for the constitutional rights of Canadians and for those lawyers who defend them. With significant cutbacks in legal aid, increasing complexity in the court system, expanding police powers, degradation of privacy rights, and evaporation of procedural protections in court on the horizon, there is no doubt that Michael's term as president brings with it serious challenges. And for those reasons, there is no better time than the present to have an advocate like Michael leading lawyers like him in protecting the rights of all of us. We are very grateful to have him with us in this episode. Why choose law? Why choose criminal? I I, I think my story is maybe a bit of a common one in the sense that criminal law in particular was something that I was always interested in. It's something that really as a as a young young person much younger than before university back to my early high school days and even before that to some extent i always had it in mind that i wanted to be a lawyer and criminal law was something you know you don't know what it means to be a lawyer when you're that young and you certainly don't know what it means to be a criminal lawyer but i was inspired certainly in my teenage years uh, by eddie greenspan back when i was in sort of early high school grade 9, grade 10, Eddie Greenspan's name was all over the press. This is before, obviously, social media and before iPhones and uh, the internet even. But 
he was the name that was at the time he was doing the Bucks bomb trial and, you know, the Toronto Sun and the Star back then, uh, those were the papers you'd read and you'd read about Eddie and you'd see him on TV talking to the media uh, about the case as, as it went along. And I decided then, rightly or wrongly, probably naively, that I wanted to do what that guy was doing. And How old were you at the time? I would have been really 14 or 15 <laughs> because Bucksbaum was 84, 85, and, and I was born in 1970. So really that early on, I, I set my sights on becoming a criminal lawyer with really not even knowing what that meant. And, and really, I, I think really naively uh, in terms of setting it as a, as a goal. And throughout my... Uh, university days, you know, throughout high school, that was, it was always about being a lawyer. I really didn't consider anything else. So when I went to law, uh, to university in my undergrad, I uh, took an undergrad course uh, in philosophy, knowing I wanted, I mean, I, was, I wasn't going to work in philosophy. I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and um, I knew I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. And that's, that's sort of how I started. What's interesting about your um, description of starting is it's the almost identical description that Eddie himself gives in what he started. He, he um, as I recall, uh, started around that age watching trials like um, G. Arthur Martin and hearing about J.J. Robinette and all these titans. And here you are, um, a young Michael Lacey looking up to Eddie Greenspan and this gets passed on. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. And I, I think lawyers of my generation even whether they're criminal lawyers or not, uh, Eddie was such a force and he was such a well-known person in terms of the criminal law landscape, but just the legal landscape that many lawyers of my generation, it was Eddie Greenspan who sort of first turned them on the idea to being a lawyer because it just looked like, you know, it was the closest thing to TV, you know, in terms of what uh, being a lawyer is, is really about. And, you know, and he just did it so well and interacted so well with the public and the media uh, that he was really an inspiration for me. All right. So you finish university, you finish law school. Needless to say, you must have applied to Eddie's office wanting to work for him. Yeah, I, I, I did, you know, and it was, you know, I couldn't believe it that I got to the point where I thought I had, I thought my grades were uh, decent enough that I could uh, get an interview with Eddie's office. And at the time, he was partners with the great Mark Rosenberg uh, as well. And Marie Hannon was working uh, with them at the time. And I got that interview and it was probably one of the most significant days in my life in terms of my career at that time or my future career at that time. And, uh, you know, of course, I go in for the interview and it's not with Eddie. It's not with Mark Rosenberg. It's not with Marie Hennon. It was with another lawyer in the office. And I walked out of that interview a half hour later. And I remember calling a friend of mine at the time saying, um, I never want to work uh, in that place or uh, I'm never going to be able to work in that place. I couldn't even get through the interview. And so it was quite uh, <laughs> quite ironic that this was the, the, the iconic uh, Eddie Greenspan. I finally get the interview and then uh, I blow it and I don't get the job offer from Eddie Greenspan. Well, maybe fortunately, because who you ended up articling with, of course, was none other than uh, the legendary Alan Gold and now the Honorable Justice First, one of the most respected justices in Canada. And I think it goes without saying that those articles must have in many ways shaped you for the lawyer you are today. Yeah, and, and there's no doubt about that. And in, in retrospect, when I look back at it, I, I, I'm glad that I didn't get that uh, interview 
uh, or didn't get that job with Eddie Greenspan. And I ended up having the opportunity to, to meet Alan Gold for the first time. Michelle first had taught me uh, uh, criminal law and evidence uh, together with uh, Justice Watt. But I got to meet Alan Gold for the first time. And uh, I think I learned more in that articling year about what it takes to be a criminal lawyer and how to work as a criminal lawyer and how to interact with the courts than I've learned since that time in terms of how much I absorb. So I certainly, in retrospect, I, I don't regret and, and I don't begrudge the fact that I didn't actually get hired for that articling job with Eddie Greenspan. I, I can't imagine I would have had a better experience than I did. It, it is really hard to appreciate at times how much uh, our articles can uh, push us as lawyers, can develop the habits that carry us on throughout our careers. And you know, but looking at it from an articling student's point of view, imagine someone else tomorrow is finishing law school and they've got a great um, articling position lined up, maybe even with Alan Gold. Uh, that's an intimidating thing. And I wonder what advice you would have for those articling students uh, commencing that journey and how much they can take from the articles. How do they get the most out of it so that they can become uh you know, the best lawyers they can be in the future. And, and I've had this discussion with, with young people, and, and, I, and I say articling's changed from when I was doing it. It's, it's a shorter period of time. It's more competitive now, uh, arguably, than it was before. But what I say to, to young people in that position is you have to really immerse yourself in that uh, opportunity that you're given through the articling position, whether it's with Alan Gold or with anyone else, uh, and really give everything of yourself to that 10 months. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot, I think, is, you know, balance, work-life balance, and there's time for that, but the time for that is not during your articling year. You have a unique opportunity in your articling year to learn as much as you can without really having the responsibility that you're going to have when you're a lawyer. And I, I really encourage people who are articling, whether it's with me or other people, to make the most out of the experience. I think you, uh, when you're articling, it really is you have to make the most out of the opportunity that's given to you. And it, it's, it's not a, a bad lesson for the rest of your career as well. When you're articling, though, uh, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but there's often this feeling of uh, inadequacy. How am I going to live up to my principal, you know, someone who you perhaps have assigned a factum to and thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got a hand in this factum and this person's life is in the balance and, I, and, and, and Michael's relying on me. What would you say to those students who are starting out and, and wondering if they have what it takes? I think anyone who goes into criminal law, if, if you're going to article in criminal law, uh, I don't think you use that as the opportunity to decide whether you want to be a criminal lawyer or not. I think you have to make that commitment before you article in criminal law. And you have to be passionate about criminal law. It really has to be how you see yourself or you're going to define yourself as a lawyer as opposed to simply a job that you're going to do uh, each and every day. And um, what I'd say to people, because it is intimidating, you're, you're dealing with people who have been doing this for a long time, but we were there once too. We started out as articling students at, at, at one point. And as much as I revere Alan, I, I revere Eddie Greenspan and all of the other titans 
uh, of the criminal defense bar. When I was working for Allen and, and later on when I had the opportunity to work directly with uh, Eddie Greenspan as well, as much as I admired everything that they did and I learned uh, tremendously from them, I always believed that I could do what they were doing too. It just had, it was going to take time. It was going to take hard work. Um, but I put everything into that experience. And the other thing is that you can speak to your articling principles as well. You can actually tell them that you're struggling with issues. They're not there. Uh, we're not there simply to dismiss you out of hand. We want you to succeed. And mm -hmm. if you want to succeed and you're passionate about it and you're willing to work hard, you will succeed. One of the things I, I always tell articling students, and I learned this from working uh, directly with Alan and Michelle, it's that articling is not a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and a it very really good sticks insight. with me. Yeah, yeah, and you know, having all these great uh, influences because in, eventually you do end up working with the person that started it all with Eddie, um, and and being around Alan and Justice First, um, all these great influences. Is there one person in particular that you feel has had the greatest impact upon your advocacy style? I, I have to say, Alan. Alan has been. Uh, the, the person who really influenced me the most. Uh, Alan has uh, a style and a way of, of making submissions that it's forceful, it's respectful, it's always logically consistent, it's compelling, and uh, for better or for worse, I probably developed some of my advocacy style uh, from Alan. Although one of the things I did learn from Alan as well is you have to be you. You can't, mm -hmm. advocacy can't be you pretending to be someone that you're not. So it, it's, I, I wouldn't say that you copy anyone. You can learn from what other people are doing. And if you watch great advocates like Alan, like Eddie, like some of the other uh, people in our profession, Brian, Frank Adario, Marlis Edward, Clay, I mean, the list goes on, Marie Hennon, you can pick out things that they do and they do extremely well. And you try and learn from those, uh, those skills that they're demonstrating when they're advocating. But you don't need to copy what other people are doing. You do you do advocacy the way you are, but learn from what other people are doing to try and do it well. It's it's interesting you say that because that's certainly something I've noticed as well is is part of um, what seems to be persuasive, the most persuasive aspects of, of advocacy is being natural. But, you know, looking at um, the advocates, they all have these great stories about what form them prior to uh, law school, what form that character, what form their, you know, sort of unique approach to persuading people. And, you know, in, in leading up to this, um, you know, we've had some uh, discussions about your background. And as I understand it, you didn't come from, um, you know, a family of judges or lawyers like many people in law school do. Um, I understand that you came from a relatively modest family and were the first to head off to university. Yeah, I, I came from from a, a working family uh, and, and a relatively large family. Uh, I, I have four siblings, and both of my uh, parents worked in uh, what are blue-collar jobs. Both of them worked in factories. Neither of them uh, graduated from high school. and um, But seeing the way they worked and, and seeing how hard they worked uh, to you know, we always had a place to live. We always had food on our table. We didn't have 
uh, lavish vacations. Um, you know, uh, I don't think I had been on an airplane on a, a trip outside of Canada until I was 19 or 20 years old. So we didn't, we weren't jet setting around the world or doing the kinds of things that maybe other people were doing. But I saw how hard they worked to ensure that we had a safe, comfortable home and that we also had the opportunity if we wanted to, um, to work hard uh, in school. And uh, certainly my parents were uh, encouraged that they were they were always there uh, they wanted to see the report cards they were were proud of whatever accomplishments um, I had in terms of academic performance at the time and I, I came to believe that with hard work um, you you know if you were given the opportunity to go to school and you worked hard you could actually uh, do anything you wanted and they never told me otherwise and and I think that really stuck with me when you know I graduated high school and you know I had to work through university uh, getting uh, assistance government assistance and then I worked through law school as well but it, it was never an issue for me that I had to work to get where I wanted to go uh, and I, it was certainly one of the lessons that that I think was very important very formative for me in terms of being a lawyer uh, today because you know when you say that the, the, so many people go into law school and it is intimidating being surrounded by students of uh, who are f fathers and mothers or judges and uh, partners on Bay Street. And um, I wonder, do you feel that your um, background and having to work for your education and perhaps some of the, the jobs that you've held up until that point in time, do you feel that that's enhanced your advocacy style? I think certainly it's, it's um, allowed me to... Uh, have a different perspective maybe than other people who have had other opportunities and I don't begrudge people who have opportunities uh, at some point you know my daughter may have opportunities that I didn't have and, and I don't think that's a bad thing uh, but do I think it's made me who I am today and made me the lawyer I am today yes and I think it's it's one of the reasons why I went into criminal law we, we deal with people who uh, don't always come from the highest uh, socioeconomic uh, places. We deal with disenfranchised people. We deal with people uh, who are in crisis. And I, I think one of the reasons I gravitated towards criminal law as opposed to uh, commercial litigation or, uh, you know, business associations or things like that is because uh, I hate to say I came from the streets. I don't mean to put it like that, but I came from a background where uh, you were a bit of an underdog. And uh, that's how I feel about criminal lawyers and about the kinds of people we represent sometimes. And in litigating these cases, you know, acting, as you put it, the underdog at times, you know, fighting for people um, where their life is in the balance, facing very severe sentences, it goes without saying that this carries with it tremendous stress. And I don't think it's unfair to say, you know, there's stress with all types of law, but in criminal law in particular, um, that stress has a very human face to it. And I wonder um, how you have found dealing with that. Is there, are there mechanisms that you employ or strategies you've learned to try and ensure that you can go on and fight the next day? I, I wish I could say that I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I run for two hours <laughs> and I get all the stress out that way and and you know everything is hunky dory. I, I I haven't I don't do those types of things, but you do have to learn how to deal with 
the stress associated with taking on other people's problems, which is what you're doing in criminal law. And um, some people would be critical of this, but I can compartmentalize. I, I, um, I, I really am of the view that, first of all, I don't judge my clients when they come through the door, and I don't have value judgments about things that they're alleged to have done. But the same, at the same time, in terms of being able to keep being able to do this, I'm able to compartmentalize results sometimes. So, uh, I mean, we never like to lose. We always, especially those cases we feel that we should win and the, that really have a, a profound effect on someone's lives. But I can move on to the next case, and I do move on to the next case because there's someone else that may need my help. I always view what we do, you know, there's extreme highs and extreme lows. And, and, and in some ways, that's that's why we do what we do. It's not a lot of time we're just sitting around the office, not at one of those two extremes. So I, I guess that's the way I really handle stress. I also enjoy the time when I'm away from the office, um, when I, I do try and take down time with my family and spend time with my family. I try not to allow the stress of what's going on to infect um, my life outside of the office. Is there a, a tool that you've learned to achieve um, this harmony where you can compartmentalize and shift from family to court? Do you, um, for example, just go off the grid or have you learned other ways to deal with it? Yeah, my wife would tell you and my daughter would tell you I, <laughs> I'm never off the grid. If anything, I'm always uh, connected to my phone. But one of, that's one of the ways I handle the stress associated with practice. I, I like to know what's going on to have control uh, over what's going on. But then you do, you know, over time, earlier on in my career, I didn't do this as well, but certainly in the past five to 10 years, I've realized that you really do have to step away sometimes. And, and there are uh, occasions, my wife and I both have families that have connections uh, to Newfoundland, and we actually have a, a small cabin there. We don't get there as often as we we like to. We we'd like to, but uh, you know, if we can, once a year, once every eighteen months, we go there, and it is completely off the grid. There's no cell phone service. It's well water. It's a generator, uh, and you know, when we do that for three or four days, it's it's a perfect way. Uh, to relieve some of the stress associated with what we do. But if you made it five or six or seven days, that would just make me more stressful. Right. But I can imagine now with your position as president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, it's a very large organization. It needs to be dynamic, responsive to the issues that are coming up. Uh, do you find it harder to achieve that compartmentalization uh, when issues are arising and news breaks and, you know, someone's asking for an answer and what the position is of the criminal lawyers? It, it, it's always difficult, um, you know, to try and step away and compartmentalize. I, I make a point of, um, I, I work six days a week um, and I work into the evenings. I make a point of not working on Friday evenings. It's sort of understood that I'm not going to work on a Friday night. I'm not going to schedule meetings. I tend not to respond to emails. My, my view is always that if something arises on a Friday or a Saturday, it can probably wait until the Sunday. So that's one way uh, I do it. Uh, I, I, I may be coming across like I have this great balanced way of dealing with these things. And, and if, if any of my family's listening to this, they'll start laughing because they would probably tend to differ. But um, I, I, you do have to take time for yourself. This is a, a, a long 
you know, it's more of a marathon than a sprint, I think, in terms of the way uh, we practice. And if we want to practice in a healthy way, you can be fully committed to your clients and fully committed to the cases that you're doing. But in order to be your best, you do have to step away from time to time. Okay, I've got a, I've got a question that everyone wants to know. If you had, and I, I'm certainly about to get into what you consider to be the essentials of advocacy. If you had sort of an inscription on your desk to read as you're making every day, you know, arguments. I think, um, I can't remember which president it was now, but his was the, the buck stops here. If there was an inscription of advocacy that you would live by, uh, what would that be? Don't let the law get in the way. <laughs> and, and, and I actually mean that because it was something that uh, Eddie Greenspan used to say to me when I would work with him over the years and, and when I became his partner. And I try to keep that in mind when I'm, I'm doing, you know, oral and written advocacy. And, and what he meant by it was obviously we have to make arguments within the bounds of the law. But part of our role as lawyers is, is to move the law and move it in the direction we want to move it and to think outside of the limits of what the law is in terms of what's been established already. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the other part of it that uh, I think it, it, it reminds us is that law is about human story. It's about facts. It's about equities, whether you're at the court of appeal or whether you're in front of uh, a trial judge, the, the, the human story and the equities associated with your uh, particular case or the particular argument you're making are really important. And so don't let the law get in the way. What, uh, on the, the other side of things, what's something you hear lawyers say a lot that you think is just way off is not good advice, but somehow keeps recirculating in the tips. The the, the one that always comes back to me, and I, I've never understood it, is the suggestion to young lawyers that you never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And I think that's the worst piece of advice that you can give a lawyer. Why do you say that? Because the you, sometimes the answer doesn't matter that you get. Sometimes it's the question that is really more important than the answer. Sometimes whether the witness agrees with you or disagrees with you, it's going to give you uh, an opportunity to exploit one or other aspects of their credibility or improve uh, something about your case. And it doesn't mean you're reckless in your questioning. You can't be reckless. You have to know your case. I mean, one of the things I say when people say, well, what's it take to be a really good advocate? I'm not sure I know necessarily, but I'd say preparation, preparation, preparation are the three things that you need to do. But, you know, there are times when you have to ask a question, even if you don't know the answer to it, because it's worth the risk. It's going to help the argument you want to make, or it's worth going down that road. You can't be reckless, but to say never ask a question you don't know the answer to. There are many questions I've asked in my career that I don't know the answer to, and many times they become the best evidence in terms of making the ultimate argument I want to make. What's interesting about your answers, you know, the last two uh, answers, is it seems as though um, you've learned to become relatively comfortable with uncertainty, you know, not letting where not letting the law dictate where you're going, not necessarily having the answer to every question in advance, but being able to adapt. Do you see that important uh, in litigation? In fact, I'd say for 
people who struggle with advocacy, whether it's young lawyers starting out or whether it's people who've been doing it for a long time but may not necessarily be doing it effectively, they, they get stuck on their theory of a case going into a case or they've prepared a cross-examination with laying out their questions and as they go into that cross-examination, they stick with their script and they stick with the disclosure and they're not adapting to the evidence as it unfolds. And I think the best trial lawyers adapt to the evidence as it unfolds. They may have to switch their strategy as the evidence unfolds. They may have to develop a different defense than they went in originally when they were doing the case. And I've seen great lawyers do this. And the same thing I would say where I spend a lot of time is in oral argument at the Court of Appeal. And the best advocates at the Court of Appeal know how to adapt. They know how to read the room. They know how to uh, be prepared to not completely reinvent their argument, but be prepared to adapt to uh, concerns from the court or questions from the court and get a real feel for the room. With that adaptation, though, there must be a certain degree of, uh, I guess you could say, stability that's required, almost your, your touchstones that you can come back to. And that obviously could come out through preparation and knowing your argument. But I wonder on a more superficial level, are there touchstones that you like in the sense of, you know, is there one thing or ritual that you just can't go to court without a favorite pen or a briefcase? Or is there something that just gives you a sense of ease when you're litigating? Yeah, I, I wish I were more, more superstitious and I had developed these really uh, important rituals that I had to do every day, wear the same socks whenever I'm making an important argument or, um, you know, have the same binder whenever I'm making an important argument. And, and I, I guess I lack imagination or I'm just not that interesting. I don't have those kinds of rituals. The one thing that I do, though, that is important to me is uh, every year my my daughter and my wife, uh, since since my daughter was born, so for 13 years now, on Father's Day, they'll always give me a set of cufflinks. And the one thing I always insist on is that um, I have a set of the cufflinks that they've given to me, and I I, I wear them, uh, you know, with my court shirt, and that that's important to me. Not so much that it has, doesn't have to be the same cufflinks, but it it just is a comforting thing that they're with me when I'm making the arguments because it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. It doesn't matter, at least from my perspective, how prepared you are. When you stand up to make the argument in front of a trial judge or you stand up in front of three judges of the Court of Appeal or nine at the Supreme Court of Canada, there's anxiety associated with that. And just having that familiarity of the, I've got the cufflinks my family's <laughs> given me, it makes me feel better. Plus the cufflinks get some TV time right on the Supreme Court. Um, what about after you know a big day, you've just obtained a great verdict, as you often do, do you have a particular restaurant that you love going to or some ritual afterwards to do to celebrate something like that? Yeah, my, my favorite thing to do really is is to wind down with with my family and with, with my wife. And, you know, especially when the weather allows it, when we can sit out on our back porch and we can share a glass of wine and I, I can talk to her about what happened in court that day or tell her about um, something that happened that, that made me feel pretty good in terms of getting some kind of result. And I, I really do like to share that 
with her. And now as my daughter is getting older, I like to share it uh, with her too. And, and you know, unfortunately, probably I, I developed one habit from Eddie Greenspan that uh, I, I really enjoy and I, I have not quite kicked yet. I, I do enjoy uh, smoking a very nice cigar when I've had a very <laughs> nice day in court and a very nice result. But you work hard for it. So the... Um is there one case, you know, I don't want to touch upon privacy issues or anything like that, but is there one case that you can talk about that you're particularly proud of, uh, whether it's in the Court of Appeals, Supreme Court of Canada, or even a trial verdict? Yeah, I, I, I give a lot of thought to this coming in uh, to our discussion today, and, and there's a number of cases. We all have war stories. We all have uh, things that we're, we're proud of. But there was one particular case, and I won't bore everyone with all of the details, but it, but it has to do with a, a, a policy and a way in which the RCMP was impl- implementing wiretap authorizations, not only in Ontario, but throughout all of Canada. And as a result of uh, working very hard, as a result of actually insisting on visiting a wiretap authorization room in Newmarket, Ontario, and examining the software and the way in which they were implementing the wiretap authorization, uh, I was able to ultimately establish that across Canada there was systemic non-compliance by the RCMP in wiretap authorizations, and it spun off to a number of different cases, and coincidentally I happened to act for a number of the accused who were affected. A number of my clients uh, obtained exceptional results as a consequence of that. Other accused throughout the country obtained uh, some remedies for the, for that systemic uh, violation as well. But more importantly, um, you know, I felt I, I really exposed a, a, a really serious problem that led to uh, real change. And that's a really nerdy, I know, example because it's not, you know, I've had clients as well, of course, that uh, were innocent and were found not guilty. And those are wonderful stories as well. But this one was was different in the sense that it wasn't just for the client. It actually changed a practice that was um, obviously one that should never have been in place in the first place. So right. it, it's I, I have three cases that, uh, you know, the, the verdicts or the results are, are framed and, and they're in my office. And that's one of the three. And what I draw from that is these sorts of you know cases that you're proud of and and that I think this is common in law is it's very understated the effect that these little cases that can come by and how they can unfold and what you're describing what is the case by the way can you uh, say I, I can say it. It, it, it it's a case called uh, Hurley uh, Regina and Hurley and it is um, it is there's a reported uh, version of the case uh, from very recently, but an earlier, uh, this, this all arose in the context of an earlier investigation. And uh, as a consequence of what happened, um, I actually had a, a senior RCMP officer admit on the witness stand that they had fabricated disclosure to keep this issue away from me. And it ran as the front page of the National Post. And uh, ultimately, the Crown stayed the charges before they could have an adverse finding. But that's really the case that sticks out. But when that person walked into your office, did it ever cross your mind that this was going to change the way RCMP and police investigated people across the nation? No. In, in fact, like many interactions we have with clients, uh, he came in and in, in, in 
crisis and he had a situation and it looked somewhat overwhelming at the time. And, um, you know, it was one of those cases where you really had to uh, leave no stone unturned and you had to think I hate to say think outside the box, it's so overused, but we, we do sometimes get into criminal litigation ruts where you look at cases and you always look at them the same way. And one of the lessons I learned both from Alan and from Eddie is that you really have to be innovative sometimes. You have to push the envelope sometimes in thinking about issues. And I'm not talking about the law, just thinking about the factual issues. And that was a case where I, I had to do that because everything was on the line for the client. He would have gone to jail for a significant period of time had we not been successful. It's amazing what you can uncover with some persistence and sustained thought. Um, and, and a proper retainer. <laughs> That's right. Very important. If you could, um, you know, looking very broad knowledge of um, jurisprudence in Canada, if there's, there's one case from the Supreme Court of Canada, I won't ask you to comment on your own case, but is there one case that has always irked you a little bit in the sense that they you just think I wish I could overturn that if it was up to me well if I hadn't heard your interview with uh, with <laughs> Gerald Chan uh, I, I would have similarly uh, used the example he gave of Sinclair I actually would have taken it back to Oikel but mm -hmm. in an effort not to simply uh, copy him and and say what he said um, I, I, to my mind uh, Garofoli has been a really problematic uh, case. And again, this is for the law nerds, I guess, and it has to do with leave to cross-examine an affiant, and it has to do with um, the ability of the police to rely on secret information right. to get search warrants, what we now think of as step six of Garofoli. Mm -hmm. And a, a really unfortunate byproduct of Garofoli has become what I think is a really problematic issue that the police can go out and get these judicial authorizations to break into our homes or to listen to our communications or to read all of our emails and text messages. And when it comes time to find out whether or not they really had a basis to do that, we're precluded from knowing all of the information they relied on. And like I said, it's a pretty nerdy answer, but that's a case that if it could have been decided differently, I think uh, it should have been. Well, maybe nerdy, but it still has a very serious day-to-day -day implication for Canadians because this isn't, you know, a fantasy. We can even see the case you just mentioned of Hurley. Uh, there are things that need to be corrected, and without you stepping into that room in Newmarket, that may never have come to light. And it seems like, um, you know, cases like Garofoli uh, uh, have hurt that transparency. Um, what about uh, cases that are... You know, you deal with a lot of very, very high-profile cases with a lot of attention, uh, highly politicized. And I don't want to get into the specifics of it because many are still before the court. But I, I want to know, um, how do you deal with those cases? You know, imagine giving advice to a young lawyer who happens to have this high-profile case. How do you deal with media and the pressure that comes with that rather than the standard no comment and bustling through the, the press? Yeah, I, I think... Over time, I've 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 learned that uh, no comment is is probably the worst possible thing 
that you can say when inquiries are made uh, by the media. And of course, it's very much case dependent and very much dependent upon your client's instructions. But uh, at the same time, the media is there to report on what's happening. And uh, they're going to report whether you say something or not. And I've come to believe that it's better to at least try to take the opportunity to give the other side of the story. And I don't mean detailing your client's defense, uh, but reminding the media, which is in turn reminding the public that when someone's been arrested, that there's going to be a trial, there's going to be, that's where the allegations get litigated and tested. They don't get tested on the courtroom steps. And and just very recently, I I have uh, fortunate to have a case um, involving some very significant allegations, but it also has significant media attention. And on one of the court appearances, we had to make a decision about whether or not we would actually interact with the media or not. And it was important to me to be able at least to speak to the media without getting into uh, privilege or my client's version of events to remind everyone that this was not the trial. These were not just the allegations and we were genuinely looking forward as we are to testing the allegations in court. So I don't view the media as our enemy. I view them as uh, fulfilling an important public service. Mm -hmm. And we can help the media become educated about issues. I saw that very recently in the Sudbury by-election trial, where at the start of the trial, I think the media, a lot of the media was very much you know, settled that the two accused were corrupt and the Liberal Party was corrupt and obviously these allegations were true. And then over time, even though we weren't giving press conferences every day, we were interacting with the media, talking to them, educating them even off the record. And by the end of the trial, um, you know, pretty much across the board, no one was surprised when the charges got thrown out on a directed verdict, including the media, and I mean the right-wing media. And when we interacted with the media afterwards, we explained exactly why it was and and explained why the judge came to the right result. And I know that's a very long answer, but I would say that it's important to uh, not just take a position that you don't speak to the media for the sake of not speaking to the media. Think carefully about whether or not it's appropriate to speak to the media and how it might, in fact, be useful to your client's case. You know, as you say, the story is going to be told. It's just a question of how it's going to be. And it seems to me, you know, uh, from what you're saying, having control over that narrative to the degree that you can can be valuable to your client. But what about the young lawyer who doesn't have any experience? Um, And this may tie into your role as president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. Are there uh, means or resources for lawyers to be able to deal with that inevitability in their career? Yeah, I mean, mentoring gets used as a bit of a buzzword, but criminal lawyers in particular, whether or not it's a formal mentoring process, whether or not it's having a strong mentor in a chambers, like at King Law Chambers, for example, or other chambers in the city, just having someone who's been through this before, who uh, has experienced a case with significant media attention, and reaching out to them to ask them for their opinion. One of the things that I think is wonderful about the Criminal Defense Bar and wonderful about the members of the Criminal Lawyers Association is the willingness of senior members of the bar to speak to anyone. I I know, for example, you, Sean, when young people call you up and they just want to talk to you about something, I know you make yourself available. I know I make myself available. And I think that you'd find it's 
the rare exception that senior members of the bar do not make themselves available to young people who have questions. So I, I would say to anyone starting out, anyone having you know uncertainty about how to deal with a certain issue, reach out to to the you know great resources we have in the Criminal Lawyers Association. And by that I mean either the formal mentoring program or just the members of our association. Yeah, I would agree with that strongly. And I think what a lot of um, younger lawyers should realize too is um, uh, speaking for myself, and I, I I'm almost sure you're going to say the same thing. But I still call my mentors. Um, you know, I'm sure you still call Alan and ask him for questions, uh, answers to questions. As as recently as a month ago, an issue came up where someone had asked me asked me a, a really important ethical uh, question that the answer was not readily apparent to me when the person asked me. So I reached out to four senior members of the bar, people I trust, and that included among that list, uh, uh, Alan Gould and other people to get mm-hmm. the collective input of everyone on this very difficult question. And they've done the same. You know, we, we're a very collegial community and we always, we operate our own businesses. We, we, you know, we all have our own opinions, but one of the things I, I, I really do value about our bar is that collegiality that I think really comes through, uh, when you, when you need us, we're there. What, what is something about, um, the criminal bar, um, you know, because you see a lot of perspectives and uh, different mm, ages of practice and uh, different expertise being the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. What, what is one common thread that you think the general public doesn't quite understand about criminal lawyers, it, whether it's our personality or our approaches? What is one misconception that you think needs to be clarified? Well, the, the, the idea that, that criminal lawyers are there, I don't know how many times you've heard this, I've heard this, to get people off as if we're the prostitutes of the legal world. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's such a significant misconception about what we do every day. We are people who help people in crisis. In the same way doctors help people who have who are in crisis with respect to medical issues, we help people in crisis with legal issues and people um, who are coming into conflict with the criminal justice system. Many of our clients are factually innocent. Many of our clients are legally innocent. Sometimes our clients are both factually guilty and legally guilty. And our our role in the in, in each of those instances is to get the best result possible for our clients as if our clients could do it if they knew how to do it. That's the way I sort of view our job as criminal lawyers. So we're not there to subvert the course of justice. We're there as an integral component and part of criminal justice. If you didn't have quality defense lawyers in the room during the course of the trial, then our justice system would be illusory. There'd be no justice at all. And when you actually speak to people about it, you know, people who are not lawyers, and you actually explain to them what we do and how we do it and how it contributes uh, to a just system, it's pretty rare that someone can make a credible argument otherwise. This um, blends into another issue that um, is, is quite common in the news. And that relates to, um, you know, there's there's been a lot of controversy over sexual assault cases as of late. And in the course of that, a lot of collateral damage has been uh, blaming defense lawyers, as you say. Um, Marie Hannon 
responded with an hour-long interview that I encourage everyone to watch uh, in response to Peter Mansbridge and a lot of these questions. But is there something you could say to younger lawyers who are being discouraged by this or even the general public in understanding our role in this and whether there is uh, uh, truth behind a lot of these assertions that defense lawyers are going in and uh, quote-unquote whacking witnesses, uh, whacking sexual complainants um, in cases. Is that your experience? Yeah, it, it's hard to improve upon the interview that Marie Hennon did uh, with, with Peter Mansbridge, and I won't even purport to try to improve upon anything that she said. But um, in terms of the public, I think it's different when you're dealing with the public versus young lawyers who are dealing with this. Um, I think we, we have a duty to continue to remind people, whether it's through social media or otherwise, or when we're, we're commenting on cases about the importance of the presumption of innocence, the reason why we have a requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and the fact that there's rules that are actually in place already to protect complainants from unfair questioning. And one of the things that uh, I, I have significant trouble with, and I have tremendous respect for Professor Tanovich and the work that he does, and also for some of the other professors who have, have dealt with this issue of whacking the complainants, but they are so far off on this particular issue because any time that you, any of the examples they posit of inappropriate questions or uh, where defense lawyers have gone too far, they're examples where almost invariably the lawyer has violated some kind of rule that protects improper questions. And I don't know how you measure the justness or the fairness of the criminal justice system and the way in which we adjudicate matters by saying, oh, look, the defense lawyers were really improper with the complainant if the impropriety is not supposed to be tolerated by the courts. In other words, you don't measure the system by what people are, are doing that's contrary to the rules that are in place right. already. And we have, uh, it's important that we not allow rape myths to uh, you know, win the day in sexual assault cases, and rape myths have no place in criminal courts, and good judges know that, and good defense lawyers know that. And one of the cases you can point to, I think, where there's a, a, a wonderful legal discussion of why hashtags have no place in the adjudication of criminal cases is the recent decision by Justice Malloy involving the happened to be three police officers and a parking attendant or parking officer was the complainant but Justice Malloy's analysis of those issues and um, how why we have to approach cases like that remembering the presumption of innocence and the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt are very important okay move it you know, there's a lot to be improved upon the criminal justice system, and um, um, leaving that topic aside, what do you see some of the improvements that could come towards um, making it uh, a more accessible justice system, more efficient justice system? You know, if you had the ability of perhaps some chief justice or the attorney general, what are some of the changes you would like to see happen over the next five years? Well, th there's no question that in terms of, of the, I mean, there's two issues. There's the government issue, and then there's the issue of what the courts can do to improve efficiency and access to just, justice. But on the side of government, there's no question that we need to start 
um, you know, or continue to recognize the importance of having properly funded uh, defense counsel because that improves access to justice uh, in the criminal courts. It ensures that people, uh, it, it also improves the integrity of the results in criminal courts because when people are properly defended and if they're found guilty, you can have confidence in that verdict. And in the same way, if someone's found not guilty, you want a competent uh, crown attorney on the other side. So government has to uh, make funding uh, legal aid Ontario uh, a priority. And to their credit, the Ontario government uh, has committed a significant amount of money uh, to legal aid, but there's more that can be done. And in fact, without turning this into the you know, Criminal Lawyers Association, uh, you know, budget submission. We've advocated with the Ontario government to give legal aid more money so that they can make uh, make it available for more certificates and increase the overall uh, rate at which lawyers are compensated to ensure that quality lawyers continue to take legal aid and deliver quality legal services. But there's other things that can be done too that are not financial, like proper charge screening. Um, you know, we have a system where we all understand there's a reasonable prospect of conviction test after the police lay charges. But in reality, there's political pressures that affect the way in which that uh, discretion is being exercised. And you gave the example of sexual assault cases and the Me Too movement or the, um, you know, I Believe movement that came out of a study that was done about sexual assault complaints that were not being, did not lead to criminal charges. And I think that has created a bit of discretion, uh, risk adverse uh, behavior on the part of individual crowns, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And that's a problem. On the court side, of course, one of the things we could do is, is to change the test in terms of the common law for committal to stand trial at a preliminary inquiry. As, as you know from your own practice, the test for committal to stand trial, like the extradition test, uh, is, is such a low threshold. And what we know from our lived experience as defense lawyers is that cases that never should have probably got to trial, in, or sorry, got to court in the first place, they survive committal at a preliminary inquiry only to eat up court resources, only to eat up legal aid funds, only to eat up uh, the, the private funds that people have to pay to defend these cases. And if we had a more robust way of screening out cases, a reasonable prospect of conviction test that's actually used by the judiciary to screen out cases, I think that would be something that would go a long way towards ensuring that only those cases that really should go to trial go to trial. But your comments come at a time when it seems as though serious discussions are are being had to go the exact opposite way in that the preliminary inquiry needs to be taken away. And what would you say to people who, you know, in the media or uh, even just participants who say we just don't need that preliminary inquiry anymore? It's a big waste of resources. And, and, and I, what I would say to them is the preliminary inquiry um, is not it, it's one of those tools that was used when it was used well, it was used to screen out cases. So it, even though it's a low threshold, one of the effects of it was to allow crown attorneys who were actually exercising their discretion to really get a sense of what kind of case they really had. And historically, the Ontario Crown Attorneys Association has supported having the preliminary inquiry in place because they found it to be a very useful tool. Um, I, I would say to those who are, are 
and it looks like we are headed in the direction, unfortunately, of eliminating the preliminary inquiry. I would say in, if you changed the test for committal at the preliminary inquiry rather than eliminating it and gave the preliminary inquiry actually some significant teeth, uh, it would be a more useful tool and it would avoid clogging up resources where you need it the most at the superior courts uh, in this province. I think those are some excellent suggestions, uh, change for the justice system. And I, I think the irony to a lot of these changes is that in the end, it might very well work out to be more efficient if there was a way to uh, add the discretion that, that may not uh, presently be there. But I want to ask you about some of the changes that you do have control over. You were um, made president of the Criminal Lawyers Association in October of 2017. And um, since then, a lot of uh, really interesting developments and initiatives have come forward. Uh, I mean, leading up to that, the, the organization has done so many wonderful things. But it seems as though there's some uh, real priorities you've set um, in your term. And I'd just like to know if you want to talk about those. Yeah, th thank you uh, for that. Uh, I, I have a, a wonderful uh, board that uh, helps me run the organization, and I have a wonderful executive, um, many people with many talents, and I call on them to help me as much as possible. And one of the priorities of the board, not it's not just my vision as, as president of the association, but one of the priorities of the board was a commitment to uh, diversity. And by that, I mean a, a recognition that first of all, on the board itself, we're largely a, a white populated board. For a long time, we were largely a male oriented board. With this year, for the first time, we actually have a, a, I think it's an equal split between female and male members of the board. But what we wanted to, by saying we're, we're committed to diversity, is to ensure that we represent the diverse nature of our membership. You know, there's more and more uh, people coming into the practice of criminal law from diverse backgrounds. We don't necessarily draw them into our membership, and that's because I think historically we're seen as an organization that is very much an old boys network, and we're trying to improve that by reaching out through other organizations, whether it be um, you know organizations that represent uh, particular or, or racialized groups or organizations, uh, other types of organizations that are diverse and different than what the CLA is perceived to be and really trying to build bridges mm -hmm. uh, and cross memberships. And we want our board to be reflective of the membership. We're trying to make a commitment on our education committees to ensure that we don't go to the usual suspects when it comes to presenting uh, at educational conferences. So we're reaching out to new members and young members. But the other part, uh, one of the other priorities, uh, you know, other than just diversity, is also regional representation. I, I've been very fortunate in my career to not just practice outside of Toronto. I've traveled uh, to Sudbury, to Sault Ste. Marie, to Thunder Bay, cases in London. I mean, many criminal lawyers practice all over southern Ontario. Some of us even practice uh, in northern Ontario. And we're not just a Toronto organization. And it's important that we reach out to our regional membership to ensure that we know what's going on in their jurisdictions 
and that they're properly represented. So one of the initiatives that is actually very new since our last board meeting is each of the regional directors is being asked to host a local event where members of the executive will come up and meet with the local membership and talk to people in the regional areas outside of Toronto. So that that's those are, are very important um, initiatives of the organization and once again you know we're, we're, we're standing on on the shoulders of all the hard work that was undertaken by Anthony Mustakalis who was the the last president uh, after a four-year term but we're also trying to uh, get back with uh, legal aid and also with the uh, ministry and and get a memorandum of understanding that uh, continues to cement the relationship we have with mm-hmm. uh, the Attorney General and Legal Aid Ontario to deliver quality legal aid services into the future. Unfortunately, our memorandum of understanding, again, this is getting a bit nerdy, maybe beyond, I don't want to get into too much detail, but it, it, it lapsed in uh, 2016. And one of our priorities is to get everyone back at the table and to have meaningful consultations about where we go from here. That's great. I wish you the best of luck. But I want to know, what is your elevator speech to a young lawyer who's thinking of joining the organization, but you know, funds are tight and can only go so far. Why the CLA if, if uh, over others? So join our organization because you'll get value from your membership. You'll be among uh, friends and colleagues and people who understand what you're going through. Uh, people, uh, you know, we have a great mentorship program. We have great opportunities for young people. We have the recent call conference, which is essentially offered for free uh, to young members. And, you know, the strength of our organization is really uh, the members and the diverse nature of our membership. And the more people we can draw in, the stronger that will be as a whole. It, you know, it, it's really quite remarkable if you think about the Criminal Lawyers Association Association. We have all of these people who are self-interested and all of these people who have their own idea of what should happen or not happen, but we come together as 1,400 members strong as a common voice and, you know, we're, we're the go-to people on interventions, we're the go-to people in terms of stakeholder meetings, and that says something about our collective, that we're stronger as a collective than we are individually, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind that you'll get more out of the organization and our organization than you will any other organization if you're a young criminal lawyer. Okay, Michael, I, I want to end this um, interview with something I intend to ask almost all my guests, and that is if there's one thing that you know in your position as president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, as someone who's been to the Supreme Court and Court of Appeal and represented so many clients, uh, if you could run essentially an ad on a Toronto Maple Leafs versus the uh, Canadian Stanley Cup final, uh, what's one thing you would want every member of the public to know about the criminal justice system? Wow. I mean, that, we're really talking high level here when we talk about that <laughs> Stanley Cup final. You can have music background yeah. if you wish. Um, <laughs> the one thing that I, that I, I would want people to know and, and what I do say to people who ask or who are interested, who are not in in law and or not in criminal law, and who lament about how awful our system is. And and what I would say is this: that although our system is is not perfect and mistakes are made, we uh, have a system 
that is designed to work well. It's a system that is better than any other system. Most often we get to just results in cases and that a key component of that is having not only quality uh, Crown attorneys prosecuting cases, but that ensuring that people who are accused of very serious things have the benefit of the best and most talented uh, defense lawyers to help them. And you can really only have uh, a just result in any kind of criminal case if you have all of those components working together. And um, by then, they'll probably have changed the channel. But that's what I would say to people who, uh, if I had that opportunity and I wanted to educate everyone about what we do. Well, when the Toronto Leafs meet the uh, Montreal Canadiens in the final, uh, we'll do everything we can to run that ad. <laughs> Pool our money as a grand organization. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a real pleasure interviewing you today. Thank you very much.